just want to say thank you for having me here today. It's really a, a privilege to be able to speak to you and to address each of you here at this church and for this conference. You know, we are here because of you, and we are here because of your support, and I just want to say thank you, and I really appreciate it. Uh, a few things before we get started. I've noticed a lot of people are taking pictures and different things, and you can do that, but I'm going to take a PDF of this PowerPoint, and you can go to my website, williamroach.org, and I will just have it there, and you can pull it up so you don't have to take notes. You can listen. You can sleep. You can take a nap. You can do whatever you want. You can even post funny Twitter pictures and all that stuff about me. So, so let's get started here. So one of the things that I was thinking about recently is because I'm coming up on my 20-year high school reunion, is you start to reflect. I know some of you are older than that, but there are milestones in our lives that we think about. And I remember having a conversation with my grandfather as I was leaving to go to college. And one of the issues that I struggled with is that I came from a military family. My father was in the military, I had uncles in the military, and my grandfather was in the military. And he was telling me how he was drafted into World War II. And I was 17 years old at the time. And he told me that he was drafted into World War II at 17 years old. Think about that. He's a young boy. He was drafted into the war after his junior year of high school. And he was sent to North Africa. And from there, he went up through Italy into France and so much more. He was truly a person who saw the worst of some of those battles. If you know anything about the battle through Italy, it was one of the most vicious battles throughout World War II. And I was really struggling because I was going to college and I felt like I was letting people down. And he reminded me that he, at the age of 17, went and fought for freedom so that I could go to college at the age of 17 to enjoy the benefits of that freedom. And I think that's what we have to look at here today, is that we need to fight for the cause of freedom in an authoritarian age so that not only we, but the generations that follow us have the ability to enjoy the benefits of freedom for generations to come. And on Wednesday night, we were asked to give a quick summary of our talk, and I said something like this. My talk is to discuss the issue of authoritarianism, whether, whether it comes from the left or from the right, whether it is secular or religious, and how it fundamentally undermines the concept of individual freedom. That's what I want you to take away here. And what you're going to see in this presentation is that whether it comes from the political aspects or the theological aspects, whether that's a philosophical defense of authoritarianism or it's a ecclesiastical, a practical way that you should live out your Christian life form of authoritarianism, we're dealing with a, an authoritarianism that's going to fundamentally undermine your concept of freedom, not only for now, but for generations to come. Now, one caveat that I want to make on this is that several of us have been labeled as only punching to the right, meaning our criticisms are only towards the right. And I'm hearing what they're saying, but I also say that's a totally incomplete understanding of what's going on. 
And as I reflect upon all the different battles that I have had to fight as a Christian apologist and as a citizen of this country, I have punched probably 10 to 1 to the left than I have to the right. And I think about whether it was coming from open theism, whether it was people who were denying the inerrancy of the Bible, whether it was coming from Dallas Seminary and they had people who were buying into genre criticism saying Jesus didn't actually say the words that Jesus said, or whether it was issues of pe people saying God doesn't have exhaustive foreknowledge of the future, whether it was issues related to the woke movement and having to leave jobs and so forth related to it. The reality is, is that a good fighter doesn't just punch in one direction. A good fighter knows which direction to punch when it's the most opportune time. And right now, we have to deal with Christian nationalism. Now is the time to deal with this. So that's why I've titled this Christian Nationalism, The Danger and the Draw. So when you think about this concept of Christian nationalism, a lot of people have a variety of different things that come to mind. You know, this wasn't a concept I was familiar with 10 years ago. Nobody was really talking about this. But all of a sudden, you start hearing white Christian nationalists or these Christian nationalists are coming down on the Capitol building or Christian nationalists here and Christian nationalists there. And we're hearing the media pick up on this term and it sort of turned the, the antenna and I had to start listening to what it was saying. So what I wanna do here is, is I wanna help fill in this idea of what is a Christian nationalist? What is the danger and what is the draw of it? So here's the outline. We're gonna look at the discussions about and the definitions of Christian nationalism. We're gonna look at why history is important when trying to investigate the concept of Christian nationalism. We're gonna look at the danger of Christian nationalism and finally, where do we go from here? So I remember this being one of the first ones that I heard. You heard Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. She recently said, we need to be part of nationalism and I'm a Christian and I say it proudly, we should be Christian nationalists. And it got all the media buzz that it needed to, both the left and the right were picking up on this concept. But it's not just her. Christianity Today and also Baptist Global have said, from Marvin McMickle, he said, not only is Christian nationalism a bad political philosophy, it is also faulty Christian theology, asserting that God has some special bond with the United States. Now, if you know anything about this figure, he's not a conservative, he's a liberal talking about Christian nationalism. So we're seeing one person who's a political figure on the right saying, I want to be a Christian nationalist. Now you're seeing this person on the left critiquing Christian nationalism. Christianity Today even deals with this. Paul Miller says Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a perspective program for what America must continue to be in the future. Scholars like Samuel Huntington have made a similar argument that America is defined by the Anglo-Protestant past and that we will lose our identity and our freedom if we do not preserve our cultural inheritance. So there's a lot of rhetoric here about you need to look to your past. You need to look to your, your religious history. You need to see that you as a Christian and you as a person who cares about your nation, you should embrace this 
movement. Now, if you read the rest of this article, he ends up pushing against that concept, trying to call into question this idea. But you're seeing how they're trying to grab you into this movement. You see how they're trying to make you buy into several of these ideas about we're a Christian nation. Now, the most popular book out there right now is The Case for Christian Nationalism by Stephen Wolfe. And he defines Christian nationalism like this. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. And for whatever it's worth, and as Andy's already discussed, in one segment of this discussion, this is the key textbook. And we're going to interact with this one the most just because it has the most relevant issues related to definitions and application. And one of the things that I've said so much about it is, is that when you look at these, these definitions, we can squabble over words here and there, but the first thing I thought about when this issue came to the forefront was, I'm not so worried about the way they're going to define the word because I didn't think any of them were actually controlling the definition and the larger conversation. It, get what I mean? Because it's, it's an evolving concept. I was most worried about the application of what they were going to do with these concepts. So here's what I want you to see why I say the definition is more fluid. So here's another definition of Christian nationalism. Andrew Torba and Andrew Isker claim Christian nationalism is loving your neighbor. So you love your neighbor? Welcome to Christian nationalism. They go on to say, Christian nationalism is a movement of rebuilding, reformation, and revival. We are not trying to overthrow the existing state, yeah, right, or even necessarily earn position in its highest levels of power. That's false rhetoric. But notice what they're saying here. It's an issue of loving your neighbor. It's a rebuilding project. So, when we look at this, what's the draw of this movement? The draw is when you look on your television or you go to a public place, you see drag queen story hour. Or you see the issue of homosexuality being put before your children. Or you see some progressive idea, whether it's wokeism or any other ism that's out there. And you say, this is naturally and inherently corrupt. So then they put these things before you, this, this question. Do you want to be a Christian nationalist or do you want to see drag queen story hour? Sort of like those are your only two options. And clearly you say, well, I don't want drag queen story hour. Therefore, you're falling into Christian nationalism. The draw of it is, is that they see it as a means of saving the nation and saving the church and recovering family values. But what we're gonna see is, is that in practical application, it ends up corroding each one of those. Let's keep going here. Another figure in this book, Shane Schatzel and Christian nationalism claims, Christian nationalists are Christians before anything else. We profess to be followers of Jesus Christ and his apostles. One cannot be a Christian nationalist unless one is first a Christian. Now notice this next segment here. Christians are integralists, not theocrats. Did you hear what they just said? Remember all of the conversation that we've had here today. This is one of those where this book right here in certain respects, I'm like, well, thank you. You are the gift that just keeps on giving. 
I could not have said it any better myself. Christians, they say, are integralists. You, as a Christian, are fundamentally defined by this political movement. So they say, so they argue, so they contend. They say we're not theocrats and that we have always favored two separate institutions, one for religion, the church, and one for government, the state. Christian nationalism is more than a political movement. It is also a social and economic movement. And what we see is, is that when we look at the idea of how these other movements have come about, it is more than just a political movement. It's a political movement that's going to take over your social customs, your economic function in society, the way that your church is going to operate. So what they're doing is, is they're trying to sell you this at these very basic levels to kind of get you in the door. And where do we see these kinds of things happening in a very practical sense? This is a lot of times how cults function. They make things at the very bottom denominator so that you buy into it. We're going to help your family. We're going to help you get through a particular difficult time in life. But in doing so, you're signing up for so much more. And that's what we're going to look at throughout this presentation. Now, one figure, John Wilsey, who has written some of the best literature on this, discusses it in this way. He says this, There are many nuances to American Christian nationalism. One thing we can say for sure is that nationalism is necessarily historical. All nationalistic paradigms orient the nation in time, but not all in the same way. He says, each of these nationalisms was committed to the idea of inevitable progress. These nationalisms are progressive in that they situate America as the nation of the future. And Wilsonian idealism as a progressive nationalism directly emerged from the political and religious left. And then he quotes, Richard M. Gamble has written extensively on this subject. Now, he goes on to illustrate his point in this. He talks about how there are a variety of Christian nationalisms. And the first one is Puritan millennialism, or his idea of Christian republicanism, or manifest destiny, or Lincoln's unionism, and Wilsonian idealism were oriented towards the future. Now, we know that the Puritan millennialism looked ahead to the thousand-year reign of Christ. We're ushering this in in a nationalistic concept. He goes on to say Christian republicanism and manifest destiny saw America turning its back on the past and turning towards the future. He talks about how Abraham Lincoln cast America as being in the throes of a national death, but also experiencing a new birth of freedom and, quote, the last best hope of earth. Woodrow Wilson, a progressive idealist, and John Foster Dulles looked forward to an international order with America as the indispensable nation guaranteeing free trade and world cooperation. So here's one thing I want you to see is that Stephen Wolf would actually disagree with Wilsey's claim that nationalism must be understood historically. He doesn't want to go through all of these different historical expressions of it. And he says this, I do not describe nationalism by appealing to historical examples or historical developments. Thus, I have no need to celebrate or defend or denounce past fascist regimes or populism and other socio-political phenomena. And you would ask yourself, why? Because he can't defend it from a historical point of view. 
The history doesn't allow him to get beyond the fact that these Christian nationalisms like this have been fascist, populist, socio-political phenomena that have given authoritarianism. Why does he want to do this? He wants to give you his idea and slam it down upon you in a Hegelian sense and not have to deal with the facts of the matter. But as we continue going through, notice this. Ironically, even though Wolf does not want to take an historical approach, his view is clearly in keeping with the Christian America view discussed by Wilsey. Wilsey says this. This is the idea of Christian America. The Christian America thesis orients the nation to the past. It assumes that the American founders were Christians and that the founding documents were inspired by Christian sources. In addition, it advocates, or advocates of this movement understand American exceptionalism to be a token of God's election upon the nation. This movement arose from the general decline of Protestant Christianity in America. We need to get back to our past because we're losing our Puritan idea of what we had in the Northeast and our Christian foundation for what we need as a nation. So how do we fix it? In order to move forward, we must look back. He goes on to say this, the Christian America movement is different than previous iterations of Christian nationalism and that its proponents orient the nation towards the past. They are concerned with the faith of the founders, the Christian origins of the nation, and return of America to a golden age. Wilson goes on to say, nostalgia plays a crucial role in this brand of nationalism. Prior to the 1970s, every generation of Americans took for granted that America was some kind of Christian nation with the slow dissolution of the American Protestant consensus. However, this is no longer broadly assumed. Advocates of Christian America are now trying to recover this Christian nationality concept. Now, I can't deny that there are large throws of people who do believe in this idea that America was a Christian nation in this sense. We're not trying to deny that there are people who have held to that thought. Now, later on in this conversation, I'm going to actually question that theory to some degree. Now, here's why I want to say this whole point. This is going to start to be a response to this. And our responses are going to be, we see that there's all these different definitions of Christian nationalism out there. And one wants to be historical, and another one doesn't want to be historical. And I'm going to start to contend that we need to have a historical approach, not just because some of the figures don't want it. I'm not just trying to push something just because they're not advocates of it, but because I think the history speaks to it in so many ways. So I would highly recommend this book titled Hitler's Cross, How the Cross Was Used to Promote the Nazi Agenda by Erwin Lutzer, former pastor of Moody Church. And in this book, he lays out a lot of what I'm going to discuss here to show the severe problems that can arise when we have an integralist understanding of church and state. The history gives us the problems, and let us not forget our history lest we repeat those problems. So he talks about the First Reich, which was from 800 to 1806. The First Reich with Charlemagne, also known as Charles the Great, was crowned by, as emperor by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day in 800 AD. It goes on to say, Charlemagne was praying in front of a crypt in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome while Pope Leo was singing the Mass. Without notice or warning, Leo placed the crown on Charles' head and the congregation gave its blessing. Charles did not expect this coronation, but he was pleased. 
And as he left St. Peter's, he was determined to use the sword to build one universal Catholic church. This is where we get the start of the phrase, the Holy Roman Empire. Voltaire was probably right that it was neither holy nor Roman, nor a true empire in some sense. It fundamentally undermined, but this is what we see in the beginning. Now, the First Reich, we notice this. It was the union of the church and state began much earlier than Charlemagne. The early church faced significant persecution by the Roman Empire, but all of this came to an end when Constantine conquered the city of Rome in 312 A.D., when Constantine declared Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire, it was the advent of a sacralism between the church and state. The coronation of Charlemagne was merely the high point of this harmful and fatal marriage. It goes on to say that Charles saw his role with the state as the protector of the doctrines of the church. An infant baptism was considered the entry into the church and anyone who opposed it could be put to death. He was most interested in keeping the diverse countries Christian, but he was known for imprisoning or killing anyone who differed with the mass or the authority of the Pope. True Christians went from being persecuted by pagan Rome to being persecuted by religious Rome. Now you transition this to Napoleon Bonaparte. In 1804, there was an attempt at a grand coronation. During this time, Napoleon Bonaparte was in the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, and as the Pope was attempting to place the crown upon his head, he grabbed it from the pontiff and crowned himself. The significance of this iteration was to signify an anti-Charlemagne, because he was able to win the rights of the empire based upon his own merits. Now, Lutzer goes on to talk about how Napoleon sought to substitute the French Empire for the German one that dominated Europe. He went to overthrow Austria and turned on Prussia. And when he marched victoriously into Berlin, it signified the end of the First Reich. And Hitler later used the actions from the First Reich to prepare and justify his unity between the church and the state. As we keep going here, we see the Second Reich from 1871 to 1918. Germany was functionally split into 300 independent states, each having their own currency and measures. Otto von Bismarck had risen to power in Prussia. He had the political ability to bring unity to the split German-speaking people throughout Europe. Therefore, he sought to overthrow the military accomplishments from Napoleon. So he went to war with Austria and eventually went to war with France. Bismarck also had the Prussian king, William I, brought to France in order to be crowned in the halls of Versailles as the head of the new unified empire. He was crowned as Kaiser, or Caesar, Wilhelm, to send a clear and bold message that his goal was to reclaim the old Holy Roman Empire for German rule. This was the apparent beginning of the Second Reich. And his, Hitler used to say, or sorry, Hitler used to use this rationale to justify his two spheres of morality. Whereas Eichmann used to say, I had to obey the laws of my country and my flag. Otto von Bismarck looked at this and he claimed to be a Christian and to have had a conversion experience in the home of some pietistic friends in Germany. This newfound conversion caused Bismarck to suffer a conflict of interest. How can I reconcile my public actions and my private morality? 
I believe one thing as an individual. My morality is being held up as an individual in one way, but I'm going to act significantly different in the public sphere. And he's trying to reconcile this. The solution, Bismarck reasoned, that as a public servant of the state, he was not under or bound unto the same morality one must live by as an individual. The political effects of this is that the state can be judged according to its own laws, namely conventional laws, because its responsibilities went beyond ordinary human values. The state was to be obeyed without asking for any moral rationale. The Second Reich came to an end because Germany lost World War I. See where I'm going with this. The Third Reich, 1933 to 1945. Germany was suffering from every form of defeat and humiliation after World War I. Inflation was soaring. Hopes were low. The country was destroyed. They needed a new leader. The Third Reich, Adolf Hitler, was the man for the job. It was a great opportunity to rise to leadership. It is claimed he cried upon his mystical vision and call into politics. It is said he cried for the first time since the death of his mother. He was destined by God to play a role in Germany's future. Hitler was appointed by Hindenburg as chancellor on January 30th, 1933. He took the oath of office to uphold the Weimar Constitution, or Weimar Constitution, but later went on to destroy it. The key issue Hitler had to address was the upcoming election in March of 1933. He did not have the majority to win the election, so he created a, quote, few divine opportunities to help him win. Sounds wonderful. Reichstag building. On February 27th, prior to March 1933, from out of nowhere, the Reichstag building in Berlin caught fire and eventually burnt down. It is claimed that Marinus van der Lubbe entered the building and set the building on fire. Hitler blamed the communists for the fire and used the incident to encourage Hindenburg to sign a decree that Germany would suspend personal freedoms for the protections of the people and the state. Don't waste a good opportunity. Notice this, just right here. They're looking for the reaction they're looking at how you're going to respond. That's where they're trying to get you to. This allowed Nazis to search homes without warrant, outlaw any meetings that might oppose the state, and confiscate all private property. This continues, and Heidenberg was acting according to the Weimar Constitution that allowed the president to bypass parliament in the event of an emergency. I'm just following my legal documents, right? It goes on, in short, Hitler never got the majority vote. He never actually won the election. But through threats and murder, he was able to get the two-thirds in Reichstag and to amend the Constitution. Notice, didn't actually win the election, and we need to undo a Constitution for my rebuilding of the society that I'm trying to bring about. This amendment transferred all legislative functions to Hitler, and on July 14th, he decreed that the Nazis would be the sole political party in Germany. Are you starting to see parallels of how these authoritarian groups work? We saw how there's the transfer of power in Mao's China. We see how there's the transfer of power in Hitler's Germany and how it's being used for sole political ends. 
Hitler definitely saw, quote, the burning of Reichstag as a gift from the gods. Why? Because it gave him sole political power in Germany. So here's where I want to transition to the Reich and Hegel. Otto von Bismarck and Adolf Hitler both held to a radical form of two spheres to justify their actions, individual liberty and, quote, state liberty to some degree. Hegel taught that there that war was a great purifier and necessary for the ethical help of the people. He claimed that private moral values must never stand in the way of the state's agenda. Private morality must remain private, and state morality must be the dominant public morality. In addition to this, Hegel taught that Germany would flourish again because it represented the highest form of dialectical development. It was a necessary development that was going to come from the dialectic, dialectic fulfilling its ends. This form of dialectical thought plus the separation of the two spheres was the philosophical foundation for the later developments by Marx and others, notably dialectical materialism and a dialectical development of the state, to create the ideal state. In short, the universe and or God or if you don't believe in God, what functions like it is the dialectic in this sense, are on our side as we develop the ideal state. The Reich and religion, how did this start to apply beyond just philosophy, but philosophy into this expression of Christianity? And I agree that dialectical philosophy is a form of religion. It is a religion. Notice this, Hitler sought to use the swastika to replace the cross of Christ. He intentionally broke the cross and formed an Hockenkreutz, a broken cross, to form the symbol of Nazism, the breaking of Christianity for his new integralism. In Mein Kampf, which is my struggle, Hitler said, in red we see the social idea of the movement, in white the nationalistic idea, and in the swastika the mission of the struggle for the victory of the Aryan race. Goes on as one of the Nuremberg rallies, or at one of the Nuremberg rallies, a large photo of Hitler was displayed saying, In the beginning was the word, and the Lord's prayer was changed by some to read, Our father Adolf, who art in Nuremberg, hallowed be thy name, thy Reich has come. We see the real effects of where this can go. There were several occultic practices going on in addition to this. This wasn't just a pure sort of Christian movement or in this. There were occultic practices, transformations of consciousness, a state-approved church, attempts at surveillance culture, the use of the Nazi salute, which was to invoke the power of the earth in some of this, and the soil and the occult organization of the Order of the Golden Cross. See Don Lutzer's notion there. The point that you're seeing is, is that intertwined in all of this is a political fascism, a Hegelian philosophy, and significant elements of occultic practice. As we continue to look at this, Hitler recognized this historical development of Christian nationalism and used it for its political ends, or for his political ends. And you say, well, what might this look like? Look at this photo here. This is one of these key photos that Hitler used. What do you see here? Hitler coming out, well-dressed, put together. What do you see right there? A cross. One of the things that Hitler tried to do was to get the church on his side, onto his movement. But in doing so, he was fundamentally undermining the message and the purpose of the local church. Does history matter? 
Do we need to look at a historical overview of these matters? I think so. Because the methods are not really changing. They're using the same dialectical process. They're using the same manipulative ploys in religion. They're trying to fundamentally undermine the Constitution. They're trying to fundamentally put their people in power and to give them sole power to achieve their political ends. In summary, just on this section here, we find that there are varying definitions to Christian nationalism. Have you noticed this? There's not one sole definition of Christian nationalism. And we're going to talk about why that's the case here in just a minute. No one definition captures what the term means. The best way to understand the term is by tracing the history of the term. And even then, it does not present us with a single definition. The term can encompass anything from leftist, progressive politics to right-wing politics. And Wilsey points that out in his longer article that I referenced. Go read it. It's a great article. Western history is replete with clear warnings to us whenever we try to mix the state and religion and or embrace any version of integralism and or sacralism. Over and over again, we see this played out. And over and over again, the consequences are deafening to individual freedom, the notion of constitutional principles of freedom, and your ability to have your conscience free before the Lord and the text of scripture. Historical warning that the state can try, and there's also a historical warning that the state can try to use the church to accomplish its political ends. Unfortunately, sometimes the church can be one of the easiest things to grab. So now let's make the transition. Let's start to respond to this movement. What are some of the dangers of Christian nationalism? The first one is this, is we've already seen this idea of dialectical definitions. And as James was looking at, it's this idea of marrying a truth to a lie, where there's some aspect of truth to this, where people wouldn't fall for it. But it's the aspect of the lie that's most troubling. So when we look at this, you find Doug Wilson talking about this. He says, the one possible toxin in the phrase Christian nationalism is found in the pesky suffix ism. As the fellow said, beware of all ism, which I would have actually said isms, except for prisms. This is one of, you see, Wilson's approaches is that he tries to give these little cliches. They're not real arguments. They sound great, but they're not arguments. So you got to be fair. Notice, as the fellow said, beware of all ism except for prism. Christian conservatives are hostile to ideologies, and Christian nationalism can be made to function in such a troublesome ideological way. But if we take care to define our terms and guard our hearts against the poison of party spirit, we should be all right. So guys, we've, we've failed in the past, but now we're going to get it right. You know, Marx and, and Lenin... They didn't quite get that communism right. But if you let me define the terms, and you're the church, right? God has saved your souls and regenerated your hearts and sanctified your minds. If we just define those terms, we're going to get it right. Isn't that a ploy that's used by several fascist groups? We failed in the past. History is a counterexample of what we're trying to do, but we can now fix it. Maybe we should reject those kinds of approaches. So we look at this idea of, like, say, wokeness and dialectical definitions and how it might play into 
Christian nationalism. Notice this. What does the idea of wokeness, and you, you know how people respond to this. What is woke? I, I don't know what woke is. Are you woke? Well, it's how you define woke. And that's not what I'm doing here. I'm not trying to give you some postmodern, I don't understand the definition of a term. I can't come to a solid understanding of the definition of the term. But notice what they, they both do. Look at how the words are functioning and what's going on here, and how the progressive left and postmodernists can use both the term woke or any of the other terms that they use and Christian nationalism. One, both are products of social engineering. Two, they're used as tools of alignment. Are you woke? Because if you're not woke, you're not on our side. If you're not woke, you're not standing against racism. Because it's a tool of social alignment. Are you part of the reds or the blacks? Are you part of the brown shirts or not? Are you woke or not? Are you a Christian nationalist or not? Three, they're both means of side-taking and division. If you're not, you're an enemy of mine. You're, if you are with me, tool of alignment, are you woke or are you a Christian nationalist? You're my friend. If you're not with me, then there's a division between us. And what is the necessary effects of this? Four, each has been fruitful in the destruction and unity of the church, intentionally meant to fracture and divide. It brings unity to their party, but to the whole of the church, it radically divides us. So let's see how this might work. We see that there's a reductionistic approach to wokeness, and the same can be said with Christian nationalism. So you believe in justice, right? Raise your hand. You believe in justice, right? We all believe in justice, and you believe... Justice should be applied socially. You know, if you get robbed at the grocery store, you want the judge to come down, right? What about several other issues in society? You said you believe in justice, and you say you want it applied publicly. See, you believe in social justice, right? You see, if I, if I make it in these very basic terms of these aspects that you sort of by nature, innately believe, I can get you into my movement. So let's look at how this might apply. You believe in nationalism versus globalism, right? You want a strong America. You don't want a globalistic nation state in this sense. You want to have America be a sovereign nation and, and maybe other European countries be sovereign nations or whatever country you want. Good. And you believe Christians should work to bring about Christian morals in society, right? See, you're a Christian nationalist. If I put it in this very lowest common denominator, you believe in nations and you believe in Christian morality, you may not be aware of this, but I'm letting you know you're a Christian nationalist. Now, notice what they're not doing in that. They're not giving you the historical background. They're not talking about what they're actually trying to do with the movement. They're not talking about the actual applications of the movement. And my fear is, is that this very basic aspect of rhetoric is going to draw a lot of well-intentioned, good people and local churches into the movement, just like it did with the social justice movement. So it could be something like, oh, you're a Christian and you believe in your nation. So you're a Christian nationalist. And we find this, this form of rhetoric all over social media. And if you question it, what do you find? What do you find that they start to do? They respond to you. And how do they respond to you? What did we learn from our presentations yesterday? They give you public struggle sessions. 
where they blow up your social media, they send you terrible direct messages, they try to do everything they can in order to get you to stop saying it and to follow their agenda. But even more than this, here's what I want you to see. Christian nationalists are not controlling the definitions, even though many believe they are. The left is controlling the narrative towards their desired end. Do you see what's going on here? When our Christian nationalist friends out there are trying to give this definition of Christian nationalism, the left is letting them play this out. They're letting them push it as far as they want, and the postmodernists are controlling the dialogue. How? A dialectical definition of it. They want them to say this crazy, absolute garbage. Why? Because they want to pull you into a ploy. Or as we look at, the real thing that they're looking for is the reaction to it. And what is that going to do? Create a new synthesis towards their ideological end. So one of the things that we find is, is that you can find that a philosophy on the left or a philosophy on the right can be used in a dialogical way, in a dialectical sense, to achieve the synthesis goal. So even though they're not going to like this, even though they're going to say we've released statements on this, the Christian nationalists on the right are merely reacting to the narrative that is being controlled by somebody else, and the church cannot fall for it. So let's give just a little, a little summary on this section here. Many times today, there's an intentional blurring of definitions or an agnosticism towards definitions. While it is true Sometimes people do not know the meaning of a term. It is false to claim that this is always the case. For example, how do you define woke or how do you define Christian nationalism? We're not just trying to say, oh, I, I don't know what it means. We're not, we're not just playing this kind of intentional blurring game. We're not just playing ignorant here. And we do agree that sometimes people just don't know the definition of a term. Like, I really don't know what you mean by that. There's an intentional blurring going on here an intentional reason that they're not trying to give you a very specific historical definition or not just an analytic definition, but one that encompasses the historical realities of what it has been. Why? It's to achieve the dialectical ends of it. In addition, many critical theorists know the high-level power play they are imposing upon language. That is a fancy way of saying proper definitions would be fixed and objective, which undercut their non-essentialist philosophies. However, many average people fall for the game. Whenever you attempt to label something as woke, they will deny it because there's no real definition of woke or there's competing definitions of woke. Without knowing it, they are enacting the same game as the academic. Practically speaking, we get into this triangulation process in which everyone tries to address the situation, but no one actually ever defines the term woke. This further blurs or blurring of the terms, and allows theorists to control the narrative. So what is actually going on? It is a philosophical and linguistic manipulation. They are using postmodern and political rhetoric, rhetorical devices to not only divert but redirect the conversation. So how do we fix it? We fix linguistic manipulations by calling them out. We do not play the game nor entertain the process. We call out the game and reject the process. What happens next is that the theorists and their followers typically flip out. 
They lose their minds. Let them throw their tantrum. Let us define words. Let us not play with idealistic philosophy. Let's come back to realville. The next thing. Several figures within the Christian nationalist movement affirm a form of perspectival epistemology. So when you look at this figure, what do you see? How many of you see a duck? Raise your hand. How many of you see a rabbit? How many of you see both? How many of you would say, oh, it's just a matter of how you view things? It's a matter of your perspective. Now, this one's really easy to spot. Have you ever seen some of those things where there are these big pictures and somebody's going to tell you there's some image that's in there and I stare at them and I stare at them and I never see it? They're going to say, oh, maybe you're not initiated enough or something like that. I'm just like, no, I just don't care. But the point of this is, is that whether you see a duck or a rabbit is based off of your perspective. Now, there's academic illustrations of this. Academia, which is largely committed to varying forms of anti-realism and relativism and subjectivity in nearly every discipline, is dominated by the core tenets of perspectivalism. Namely, that there are no true independent realities or basis for knowledge. And they give an example like this. So you, the, the viewer, and you're trying to look at this concept of what is light. Is it a, an electron from the particle position? Or is it an electron from the wave momentum? What is, what is it? It's all based off of your theory or based off of your perspective. Now, examples beyond this within psychology and sociology. Is it a Eurocentric or an Afrocentric interpretation of it? Sociologies of knowledge, where knowledge exists within a particular social group, and within that social group, it functions as a truth claim. It's not an objective truth claim, it's a perspectival truth claim that's relative to that particular group of people. But notice, there's no independent reality or basis for the knowledge. It's only within that sphere. Or within science, is it causal perspectivalism and our perceptions of time and light? Now, Here's where this comes about. How many of you have ever been told you need to follow the Christian worldview? We need to embrace Christian worldview apologetics, right? I have. Many of us have. And what I want you to see is, is that there's two fundamental definitions of worldview. One is just simply giving us this idea of Christians have a particular way of answering questions based off of an objective, independent reality. The other one functions as a sociology of knowledge and a perspectivalism. And that's the form that Christian nationalists are using. Now, this debate arose within spheres of Calvinism between B.B. Warfield, the guy with the great beard, and Abraham Kuyper, no beard, founder of the Free University of Amsterdam. And what we find here is this, is that Kuyper gave the Stone Lectures years ago and here's where I kind of just want to jump into this. In the book, Reforming Apologetics, J.V. Fesco says this on this notion of worldview. He says, the term worldview is quite common in evangelical and reformed circles, likely due to the popular and influential nature of Kuyper's 1898 Stone Lectures at Princeton Seminary, where he advocated the need for Christians to develop a holistic life and worldview. Seldom has anyone questioned the historical origin of the term and concept of worldview, okay? Proponents of the worldview concept acknowledge that the term originated with the 19th century philosophy and the term Weltanschauung, 
but few drill down below the surface and explore its specific philosophical content. Recent research has traced the first use of the term Weltanschung to Immanuel Kant in his critique of judgment. Kant put forth the idea that people need to dig beneath the substrate underlying the world's appearance and our worldview. Quote, for only by means of this power and its idea do we, in a pure intellectual estimation of magnitude, comprehend the infinite world of sense entirely under a concept even though in a mathematical estimation of magnitude by means of numerical concepts, we can never think in its entirety. Kant identifies worldview as a perch from which someone views the totality of the world and subsumes it under a concept and organizing principle. Keep that in mind. One big concept, one big perch subsumes everything from that vantage point. Because remember, for Kant, you don't know reality in and of itself, but only as it appears unto, unto you. Let's continue here. Fesco goes on to say this idea of worldview and perch and all these notions resonated with a number of 19th century philosophers, including Hegel, Soren Kierkegaard, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Wilhelm Dilthey. Dilthey offers one of the more sustained explorations of the concept, so we can thus focus attention on his view. He's been described as the father of what was known as historic worldview theory because he first presented a systemic or systematic treatment of the subject. Notice this. Many Christians, such as James Orr in his published work, The Christian View of God and the World, and others such as Kuyper and Van Til within the modern Reformed tradition, taught that worldviews offered a comprehensive view of reality. These figures believed that Christians and non-Christian worldviews were incompatible and antithetical to one another. Why? They're different perches. They're different sociologies of knowledge. They're different perspectives in that sense. They also claim that someone must necessarily deduce an entire system from a single concept. According to these figures, the proper single concept to deduce all of reality from was the historic biblical worldview, namely by presupposing the singular concept of the biblical worldview, and from that particular perch, we could provide an organizing principle to understand and subsume all of reality. The perch determines the reality in that sense. You're not going to reality to discover what's there. You're giving a deductive concept of what is actually going to be there within your particular sociology of knowledge. This approach necessarily required the use of transcendental reasoning and the transcendental argument for things like the existence of God. So based upon the presupposition of the historic Christian worldview, this can be true. But that's not an objective truth claim for all different perspectives, Christian and non-Christian. So this classic worldview theory, notice this. In Reforming Apologetics, Fescu, Fesco argues, he's not grass, by the way, he's a person, argues that the historic position of the church, and he's right in this, is that the light of nature and the concept of common notions entails the validity of natural theology. This idea of common notions or innate natural knowledge of God properly describes how human reason can function in a post-fall world. Fesco argues that this type of realism, which is in many ways the manifestation of the, it says the Platonic tradition. Notice this, by Platonic tradition, used in this sense, it just means realism. 
And we can squabble about that. There's a lot that we can say, but he's just trying to say it's part of the realist tradition within the history of the church. Finds its roots, he would say, in Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Boethius, Anselm, Aquinas, Calvin, but the early and late reformers and the Princetonians. Fesco claims common notions in the light of nature are the Bible's depictions of common grace and the common ground found between the believer and the unbeliever. He sets these concepts over and against what he labels as historic worldview because the later is grounded in philosophical idealism, not metaphysical realism. He goes on to say this, according to those who have investigated its origin of historic worldview theory, idealism, it is a very distinct idea that begins with 19th century German idealism and includes the following characteristics. The rejection of a common doctrine of humanity, a single principle from which one deduces a worldview, an exhaustive systematic explanation of reality, and the incommensurability of competing worldviews. These aspects of historic worldview theory create an inhospitable environment for the historical reformed appeal to the book of nature. The increased use of historic worldview theory is inversely proportional to the decreased use of the book of nature. He goes on to say this, if the Bible provides an exhaustive view of everything, then as some worldview advocates argue, the Christian worldview must stand in complete antithesis to all other worldviews. There would then be a unique Christian view of everything. Notice this, this is the key point, of everything, because the Bible exhaustively explains all reality, and it is morally incumbent on Christians to follow its teachings. The Bible must be the only foundation for all knowledge. The Bible, however, presents a different picture. It explains that Christians and non-Christians possess a shared knowledge of the world and even God's existence. They share God-given common notions. So let's summarize it in this, and you're going to see where I'm going with this. I know this is getting to the height of it. We're going to apply this. Within classic worldview theory, it's a unified science and a unified knowledge. Historic, there are two different types of knowledge and two different types of science. One is grounded in common grace and common notions. The other is the affirmation of common grace, but the denial of real common notions between all of humanity. There's no shared knowledge. It's regenerate or unregenerate knowledge. Within the classic view, the unregenerate mind can make valid, rational statements about reality because there's a unity of truth, there can be a natural theology, and it's based off of philosophical realism. That's what's given us the notion of classical apologetics based off of the notion of shared knowledge. And probably the most important figures that gave us this approach in modern day age were people like Edwards, the Princetonians, Gerstner, Sproul, Geisler, Paul Helm, and so forth. The opposite side, like I said, there's no real common knowledge between all of humanity. The unregenerate mind cannot, of itself, make valid rational statements about reality. Only the, quote, Christian worldview, this idealistic, deductive notion, provides truth. There's no natural theology. It's grounded in philosophical idealism in both its Kantian and Hegelian sense. And this is where we get presuppositional apologetics today. So when you look at all these Christian nationalists and they're like, Oh, what, what do I affirm? One of their core tenets is you have to be a presuppositional apologist by so many of them. Now, Stephen Wolf, I don't think he is. He's sort of the, the guy that's trying to marry the left, the classic worldview, to this notion. But you look at other figures out there, like Joel Webin, every time it's presuppositional apologetics. It has to be presuppositional apologetics. Why? That's the only biblical worldview. And it must stand an absolute necessary antithesis 
to all other ones. So the friend is the biblical worldview. The enemy is the non-Christian worldview. You can't have anything in common between them. Why? Because friends and enemies can't join hands for any common task. So let's look at how this starts to play out. And I don't want to get into this too much, but there was a massive debate that came place between Kuiper and Warfield on this. And George Marsden says, despite his admiration for Kuiper, Warfield found the Dutch theologian's views of science and his views of apologetics a standing matter of surprise. Kuiper denied that there was one unified science for the human race. Rather, he argued that because there are two kinds of people, regenerate and unregenerate, there are two kinds of science. The difference is, and the two sciences, of course, would not be or would not show up in simple technical analysis, such as measuring, weighing, or the like, but only insofar as any science was a theoretical discipline, Christians and non-Christians would reach some conclusions that were different in important ways. Each would be equally scientific, but they would be working from different starting points and frameworks of assumptions. Sociologies of knowledge, all-encompassing axioms, Notice, regenerate and unregenerate. So, said Kuiper, Christian and non-Christian thinkers were not working on different parts of the same building, but on different buildings. Each will, of course, claim for himself the high and noble name of science and withhold it from the other. Kuiper, who anticipated some of the insights of Thomas Kuhn, was thus one of the early challengers to the dream that had dominated so much of the modern Western thought that the human race would eventually discover the one body of objective scientific truth. Notice this. It's the denial of objectivity. It's a subjective religious epistemology that does away with the concept of absolute objective knowledge. So instead of having subjectivity based off of race or gender or any of these other things, it's based off of your regenerate status and they apply it to science, they apply it to morality, they apply it to law, they apply it to everything. And if you're gonna claim that there's a common aspect of knowledge between them, well, then you're not granting them their regenerate notions of knowledge, there's an incommensurability between the two different sociologies of knowledge, there's no shared or common ground. Notice, to Warfield, Kuiper's view was sheer nonsense. Warfield was a man of his age, at least to the extent of believing that science was an objective, unified, and cumulative enterprise of the entire race. The human spirit, he said, attains this by slow accretions, one through many partial and erroneous things. He goes on to say, like, it's a process that comes about. Now, he goes on to say this, looking in the red here. For Warfield and his colleagues at Princeton, theology was still the queen of the sciences, and truth could be discovered once for all on the same foundational epistemological principles as the truths of Newtonian physics had been established. Building on such assumptions, Warfield's confidence in demonstrating rationally the truths of Christianity knew no bounds. It is not true, he insisted, that he, the Christian, cannot soundly prove his position. It is not true that the Christian view of the world is subjective merely and is incapable of validation and the form of pure reason. Indeed, all minds are the same essential structure and the less illuminated will not be able to permanently resist or gainsay the determination of the more illumined. 
the reason of the regenerate shall ultimately conquer to itself the whole race with such a prospect of total apologetic victory. And Kuiper's insistence that science or rationality for the regenerate and for the unregenerate seemed to Warfield to border on cowardice. As long as science was the common task of all people, said Warfield, it is the better science that will ever in the end ever in the end, wins the victory. How shall it win its victory, however, if it has declined the conflict? The point is this. Don't try to get away from the notions of an objective knowledge, an objective law, an objective reality by punting to some subjective regenerate and unregenerate knowledge. If you really think that your battle can be won, don't do it upon subjective premises. If you really think that you can fight in the court of appeals, fight on the real common grounds according to the reality that's shared between us. So notice this, quote, reform worldview epistemology that undergirds so much of this. This underlying debate is essential to the topic because several Christian nationalists who are following in the vein of Kuiper are arguing for a distinctly Christian worldview approach to laws, justice, epistemology, metaphysics, or any other discipline. It has to be viewed through that one perspective. Just like there are, quote, two different kinds of science, one is regenerate and the other is unregenerate, there are two kinds of law and two different kinds of nations. You have the Christian law and the non-Christian law, all based off of the theoretical way you understand it according to your regenerate status. So there's no idea of a common moral law that can be put in a constitutional principle. You've got to find some special religious law, which in their sense will be theonomy, that you must legislate. Fundamental, however, is this notion that all knowledge is filtered, is transcendentally deduced knowledge. It is not based upon reality, common to all people, objective, or universally given to all human beings. In that sense... It differs not in kind from wokeism, but from degree. Notice this. What's the difference between a big circle and a small circle? They're both circles. They're essentially the exact same thing, but they only differ in degree. One's just simply bigger than the other one. Whereas a circle and a square differ by kind. No matter how many sides you add to the square, it may approach the circle, but it never actually becomes the circle. And what I'm fundamentally arguing is, is that we must have a difference in kind in our epistemology with this whole leftist movement. How? One must be based off of reality. We must destroy idealistic speculations, whether it be the way that Aristotle destroyed the metaphysical idealism of Plato or the way that the realist destroyed the epistemological idealism of a figure such as Kant or the way that we destroyed the hermeneutical idealism of a figure such as Heidegger or any of these other figures. What you have to see is, is that they're using the same fundamental epistemology that you can baptize in the name of Reformed Orthodoxy or not, but they're both subjective by a difference of degree not of kind. Notice this. There's also the epistemological necessity to reject all they consider to be antithesis. Why? The incommensurability of opposing sociologies of knowledge. They have to reject anything that's not Christian nationalist by definition. Their philosophy requires it. 
This is part of the purity test offered by many Christian nationalists. Are you post-millennial? Check. Are you presuppositional? Check. Believe in theonomy? Check. If not, you're an enemy. It's not the, the theological purity test because there's an incommensurable thing between us. It's not the philosophical purity test. It's not the exegetical purity test. It has to be filtered in this one specific way. In addition to this, I call this epistemic integralism. And Hegel's transcendental concept of antithesis and the notion of the friend-enemy distinction all coming together. In this sense, it's a whole system of integrating how legal theory, religious theory, philosophical theory must all come together under this regenerate, post-mill, presuppositional paradigm. In summary on this, not all Christian nationalists agree with this approach to epistemology. Like I said, in my estimation, Stephen Wolfe is more classical in his approach. That's actually probably his most unique contribution to this debate. There is merely a difference of degree, like I said, not of kind, between the perspectivalism from the woke and many Christian nationalists. Both affirm a form of transcendental idealism, perspectivalism, and epistemic subjectivity. Consequently, the issue is you cannot fight subjectivism with more subjectivism even religious subjectivism. You can only defeat subjectivism with an affirmation of objectivity. And notice this, it's so internally incoherent. Is it objectively true that subjectivism is true for this whole debate? Oh, there's one objective truth. It's a counterexample. Right in the affirmation of it, they fundamentally undermine their whole approach. So, this is why we affirm both the objectivity of knowledge and the fact that the human mind can have knowledge of the objective moral law given to all of humanity. So, we kind of pick up from Warfield on this. With such a prospect for total victory, the Christian nationalist insistence that there are laws and rationality for the regenerate and the unregenerate seems to border on cowardice and are a synthesis with idealistic epistemology and morality. As long as knowledge was the common task of all people, we agree with Warfield, it is the better science or knowledge that ever in the end wins the victory. How shall it win its victory? However, if it declines the conflict. In short, their approach projects itself as the strong, masculine, even biblical approach, but it is none of these features. Rather, it is epistemic subjectivity wrapped in the garb of Christian language and sold as a bill of regenerate legal and philosophical theory. Moving on, Hegel's concept of the state within Christian nationalism. This Hegelian totalitarianism versus freedom. So I put this thing out at one point in time, got a little pushback on it, about how we should look at freedom and religious freedom. I said, the state does not have jurisdiction over the conscience. That's freedom. The state's jurisdiction over the conscience is the highest expression of freedom. Notice this, the state either does or doesn't. In Hegel's notion, this is Hegel's political philosophy, the state gives you the freedom over your conscience. It tells you what to do in this sense. And that's the highest expression of freedom. I'm going to give you your highest expression of freedom. But we go on to say, I said this, the state won't bind your religious conscience because it lacks jurisdiction. That's religious freedom. Or the state's binding of your religious conscience is the highest expression of freedom. Hegel's religious political philosophy. How does the state function over your conscience? Even your religious conscience is the key. John Wilsey goes on to give an 
excellent review of Stephen Wolf's book. And he draws these distinct parallels that it's not necessarily just this pure Christian approach, but there's significant Hegelian parallels between what Christian nationalism is trying to do and its project. Wilsey says this, consistently throughout the book, it's clear that Wolf's understanding of the end of the Christian national state is to secure the highest good of the people. I understand this to be the central issue of the book. Others who have parted ways with Wolf have done so on theological, practical, or historical basis. I also part ways with Wolf, and I do so because his model is contra-American. No, he says not anti-American. It's contra-American because it's closer to the Hegelian state theory than to the American constitutional tradition of federalism and ordered liberty. He goes on to say, true, Wolf nowhere relies explicitly on Hegel's writings. He built his argument on the basis of the reformed scholastic thought, but Wolf's model adopts intentionally or unintentionally the substance of Hegel's theory and the state and refracts it through a reformed Protestant lens. The effect is to render his Christian nationalism totalitarian. Wolf's magisterial Christian nationalism is functionally and fundamentally incompatible with the American political tradition. So he goes on to say this. How in this sense? He says, first of all, Wolf's model is Hegelian and consequently totalitarian. It leads to the opposite of Wolf intends by actually degrading the true faith as it ordinarily exalts the state. He goes on to say the categories of to totally and national action are Hegelian and that they underscore the nature of the nation state as totalitizing or totalizing and defined by active will. Wolf uses the analogy of the soccer team to explain the nation. Hegel's conception of the unity of the particular with the general fits well with the team analogy also. The members of the team do not lose their identity per se, but they do act as one in unified interests. And he gives four examples to demonstrate how this functions within Wolf's book to show that it is a totalitarian nation state. Example one, the active will of the nation state is expressed through civil law and social customs in Wolf's model. The same is true in Hegel's model. The civil laws of Wolf's Christian nation and the laws of Hegel's na nation state both, in Wolf's words, quote, form an interrelated and oftentimes redundant web of obligation that orders everything ultimately to the national good, end quote. Wilsey keeps on saying, it is true that Wolf's national good and Hegel's national good are different. The former is a heavenly life, the later is concrete freedom. But this is what I mean. Wolf's model bears the substance of Hegelian statism, even though it is refracted through a Protestant lens. He goes on to say, finally, the Christian nation conducts itself as a Christian nation, or as Wolf later writes, the work of the Christian nationalist is convincing his Christian nation to be a nation for itself. Hegel's direction is the same. The state is self-conscious of itself, acts for its own good, and is justified in acting for the good of itself as it defines the good, just as Wolf's Christian nation does. Example two. Throughout the book, Wolf conceives of the Christian nation in Hegelian terms. He goes on to say, Wolf employs the same categories as Hegel. A nation, equated with a state, having a self-consciousness of itself, defined by active will, bringing about the good as it defines the good. Wolf 
while Wolf does insist that his model does not emanize the eschaton, but has ordered itself to eternal life, the logic of his model is exorable. Hegel lifted the state to divine status, and in so doing, degraded religion by stripping it of its transcendence. Wolf in making the attempt of eternal life the purview of the state is on the Hegelian path of doing the same thing. He gives us a third example. Wolf's conception of the magistrate and later the Christian prince also bears the substance of Hegel's thought. The individual citizen in Wolf's model cannot always determine appropriate public action for the common good, but civil leaders having the whole in view determine suitable action. The civil laws, Wolf argues, are both theonomic and in a sense autonomic. The magistrate enacts and enforces laws of his own design, though only as a mediator, a sort of vicar of divine civil rule. Hegel was not as specific in locating the source of authority in a personal God, but notice, but the similarities between his and Wolf's conception of the rule of the magistrate are substantial enough to raise profound concern. Notice what he says. Hegel also believed that civil law in the state was just and that it was the highest good of the people to obey the law. And who made, interpreted, and enforced the law in Hegel's theory? The magistrate, that's who. The Christian prince or the magistrate. Significant parallels. Example four which gets us to Wolf's Christian prince. The civil power of the prince comes immediately from God, and the prince mediates God's divine civil rule, and he makes public judgments in application of God's natural law, effectively creating law, though derivative of natural law, and he has the power to bring about what he commands. The Christian prince, look at this, holds the most excellent office, exceeding even that of the church minister, for it must or for it is most like God. In holding judicial, executive, and legislative power in his office, Wolf's Christian prince bears substantial similarity with Hegel's monarch, who is supreme over the church, the ultimate self, and possesses self-determination to express the will of the state. So, summary of this point. Wilsey is right that much of Wolf's project is committed to the belief that classical liberalism has failed. He goes on to look that Wolf's project is in keeping with Patrick Deenan's and Adrian Vermeule, both Roman Catholic, and their claims that the classical liberalism has failed. Much of the work by these types of figures makes use of the intellectual thought of the new right that centers around the notion that classical liberalism is the cause of the present crisis. Therefore, it must be rejected and replaced. Unfortunately, much of the responses to classical liberalism bear the marks of a Hegelian concept of the state as described above. We do away with classical liberalism by giving you this Christian Hegelianism. Most concerning will be the effects of this movement and what they're going to have upon the concept of, the, of freedom as it relates to free speech, religious freedom, digital sovereignty, and the fracturing of people into different geographical parts of the country. Which brings us to our next point. It's going to force the compulsion of religion. And in that sense, it's directly in contradiction with the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Does it give a footnote that says, unless it's the Christian prince? No, it doesn't say that, does it? I don't see any footnotes. 
It's an unqualified sense in that regard. It cannot give the compulsion of religion. Notice the reality of the compulsion of religion within the Christian nationalists. Wolf says this. I just want you to hear these things. I don't want you to just hear sort of like buzzwords or Twitter feeds. I want you to listen exactly what they're saying here. He says this. The question is whether a Christian magistrate having civil rule over civil society of Christians may punish with civil power false teachers, heretics, blasphemers, and idolaters for their external expressions of such things in order to, one, prevent any injury to the souls of the people of God, two, the subversion of Christian government, Christian culture, or spiritual discipline, or civil disruption or unrest. Notice this. They want to punish with civil power anybody that disrupts what they view as true orthodoxy, if you're a heretic, blasphemer, or idolater. Goes on to say, suppressing false religion in one's own land can be called a jihad, I mean, holy war, for the intended effect is the elimination of sacrilege. In our time, the suppression of false religion is not an end in itself, but a means and matter of prudence. And such actions are prudent only if they conduce concretely to the good of the church. Holy war? Holy war. We hear that language before? Have we ever seen that language before? They're wanting to enact a new holy war. Look at this. It says, As I argue below, false religion is a crime against God, and it can cause harm to one's fellow man. Hence, one can reject the view that magistrates ought to punish the dishonor of God and still coherently affirm that magistrates can restrain false religion in the interest of public good. Goes on to say, all appropriate civil action against false religion is directed at its external expression in order to suppress external false religion and thereby prevent harm to the public, both to the souls and to the body politic. Suppressing false religion is a means, not an end in itself. Thus, the question is not whether the suppression of external false religion by civil government is a good in itself or ought to be pursued for its own sake, nor is the question whether civil government ought to prosecute all expressions of false religion regardless of their consequences and circumstances, nor is the question whether civil power can force one to speak outwardly what is true, for that would be cause one to lie. Notice what they go on to say. We can't expect a Christian magistrate having this inscripturated clarification to understand the most basic principles of man's duty in natural religion and to know what clearly violates those duties, namely atheism, polytheism, and idolatry. Two, strange and profane rites. Three, blasphemy and sacrilege. And four, the profanation of the Sabbath. These principles and their violations should be indisputable to a Christian magistrate since they are known by natural reason and conscious and clarified in Scripture. Therefore, a Christian magistrate has good and confidence epistemic grounds to act against those who violate natural religion. Goes on to say, and presumably the Christian magistrate, though not a theologian, would be no regular Christian, but educated. He is therefore a good and in a good and confident position to decide between disputes as to fundamental doctrines. Thus a Christian magistrate will have competence to decide what pertains to mere orthodoxy. Look at this. One of those principles of inclusion-exclusion is the primacy of the Christian peoplehood 
And so Christian nationalism will exclude at least the following from acceptable opinion and action. One, political atheism. Two, the subversion of public Christianity. Three, opposition to Christian morality. Four, heretical teaching. And five, political and social influence on non-Christian religion and its adherents. Are you listening to this? What about free speech? Wolf states, of course, the range and type of diversity allowed is a matter of prudence and collective experience. The purpose here is not to stifle public debate, but to maintain conditions for public debate to serve a Christian people. Public debate is a means, and as such, it ought to conduce to what is good. I affirm, therefore, that there ought to be a freedom of speech and, as with all societies and institutions, that freedoms must be bounded prudently such that public discourse conduces to what is good. The question is, who defines what's good? Notice this. I'm just laying these out here. As I've said, the magistrate, as magistrate, has no interest in heretical belief itself as an inward error, but only public heresy, the outward expression of error. The belief itself harms no one except the man who holds it, which is a matter between him and God. But public heresy has the potential to harm other souls by causing doubt or distraction or by disrupting public peace. The magistrate who must care for the souls of his people may act to suppress heresy. The Reformed tradition has a long and widely acknowledged practice of ministers admonishing and disputing with heretics prior to magistrates exercising the sword. You see what kind of discipline they want to bring about? Arch heretics are publicly persistent in their damnable error and actively seek to convince others of this error, to subvert the established church, to denounce its ministers, or to instigate rebellion against magistrates. For this reason, they can be justly put to death. This is not to say that capital punishment is the necessary soul or desirable punishment. Banishment and long-term imprisonment may suffice as well. So if you're a public heretic, we're going to banish you, put you in prison, or kill you. That's your Christian nationalist. That's what your Christian prince is doing for you. So, Wolf and other Christian nationalists clearly oppose the First and Second Amendments. The freedom of speech and religion are not prioritized amongst the movement. In fact, they're utterly and fundamentally destroyed. In addition, Wolf and other Christian nationalists seem to wrongly impose the Reformed tradition as a standard on the topic. However, Reformed theology is marked by a commitment to sola scriptura, not a blind allegiance to any tradition, including the Reformed tradition. In fact, I spoke with one key leader on this, probably the key sole thought leader on scholastic Reformed theology, and he just kind of scoffed it off and said, yeah, there's more people than just the two or three or four that Wolf is actually citing in this. He's literally like the Puritan scholar on the topic. The only reason I'm not dropping his name is because I don't have permission. Moreover, Wolf wrongly assumes the few figures he cites represents the Reformed tradition. To be Reformed is a much broader concept than just the few figures that he's looking at. Finally, many Reformed theologians disagree with Wolf's exegetical and theological conclusions. So let's pick it up here. What about theonomy? The two words, theos and namos, the rule of God's law in that sense, divine law. Let's respond to this concept. Wayne Grudem gives us a great notion. He says this, Proper interpretation of Israel's laws requires a mature understanding of the place of the nation of Israel in the history of the Bible and God's purpose for Israel in the history of the world. 
God's law was given to the nation of Israel. When you read the narrative of Scripture, we see that God gave the Mosaic law to the people of Moses. He goes on to say this, proper interpretation of Israel's laws also require a realization that Israel was unique because it was to be for God, quote, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It was a theocracy ruled by God himself, and therefore the laws of Israel govern the religious life of God's people, such as their sacrifices and festivals and their worship of the one true God, as well as matters that ordinarily belong to all civil governments in all ages of history. Notice, it's something unique unto the nation of Israel throughout the salvation history narrative in the text of Scripture. Another thing that Tom Schreiner gives us is this. He says, I would argue that it's clear from Romans 10, 4, 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 18, Galatians 3, 15 through 4, 7. We're not going to cite those here. And other texts as well, that believers are no longer under the Mosaic covenant in law. The entire law has ceased to be an authority for believers. Hence, the notion that the civil laws for Israel should continue to function as the rules for the nation states today represents a fundamental misreading of the scriptures. Believers are no longer under the law, for the law was given to Israel, which functioned as both a political and as an ecclesiastical community. No nation today occupies the place of Israel, for no nation can claim to be God's unique chosen nation. He goes on to say, sometimes believers though not all theonomists, in the United States will identify their country as God's chosen nation. But such a statement is a theological misstep. Notice, for it appropriate to a modern nation state what was true only of Israel. The people of God now hail from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and cannot be restricted or linked with any particular nation. Indeed, the New Testament gives no indication that nations themselves would ever become Christian. There may be many individual Christians or even a majority of Christians in a nation, but nations themselves are not Christian. In addition to this, the Westminster Confession of Faith would uphold this. Chapter 19, Articles 3, 4, and 5, where it gives this idea where it says this, besides the law commonly called moral, because it makes a distinction between ceremonial, judicial, and moral laws, goes on to say, besides this law commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel as a church underage ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Ceremonial law, done. Goes on to say, to them also, a body politic. He gave them sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. Judicial laws, done. Something specific to the nation of Israel. This is the Reformed heritage. This is the Westminster Confession. It goes on to say, the moral law, though, doth forever bind us as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Neither, neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So what continues? The moral law. It's not like morals changed from the old to new covenant. The ceremonies changed because they were fulfilled in Christ, and the judicial applications were relegated unto the nation of Israel, not unto us. In this 
very popular book titled Legislating Morality by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler, they look at this notion that came about with Theonomus. And it says, contrary to what Theonomus claim, the United States has never been a government based on biblical law. Our government is based on the moral law, which is consistent with biblical principles, but is not based on the written code of the Bible itself. Remember that our national birth certificate, the Declaration of Independence, is not a distinctively Christian document. It was written by Thomas Jefferson, who wasn't even a Christian, but he still affirmed the natural law, common notions, common morality, and so forth. It says, despite Jefferson's deism, it is true that many of our founding fathers were Christians who put biblical principles into the Constitution. However, the Constitution itself makes no reference to the Bible or any binding Christian basis for it. It does not even begin with God, but with we the people. Although the courts have referred to America as a Christian in a moral sense, Christianity was never given the established religion of the nation. Given these facts, while we cannot deny there was a strong Christian influence at the founding of our country, there's no reason to claim that the United States has ever had a Christian government. Therefore, our nation cannot return to something it never had. In addition, the only time there was any form of Christian government on this land mass was in the Pilgrim settlements in New England, but that was over 100 years before our nation was born. It must not be forgotten that under the Puritans in Massachusetts, there was no religious freedom. They persecuted those who did not believe their ways or their way. Many of those calling for a return to Christian America have forgotten what this so-called Christian state was like. Ironically, some of them are Baptists who have forgotten that Roger Williams, a Baptist preacher in colonial from colonial Massachusetts, fled to what is now the state of Rhode Island in order to avoid religious persecution by the Puritans. Historical precedent. It goes on to say about the First Amendment, the second problem with the Theonomist position is that it would violate the First Amendment by ending religious freedom in our nation. Theonomists want the same law of Moses that was binding on the people of Israel to be binding on all the people of America. But there was no freedom of religion in Israel before the coming of Christ because God himself was the ruler of the nation. Moreover, there was no separation of religion and politics as we know it, because God ruled in their political lives as well as in their religious lives. However, once Christ came, even the theonomy of Israel was superseded. Yet even though Israel is no longer ruled directly by God, theonomists want to establish divine law in the United States. Wayne Grudem talks about the horrors of what could come about if the autonomy were enacted like they want. It says, proper interpretation of Israel's laws requires understanding of another unique aspect of the laws of Israel, namely the imposition of the death penalty, not only for murderer, but also for promoting a false religion, for rebellion against the family authority, and for sexual sin. These and other examples of the death penalty were part of Israel's identity as a holy nation before God. But that does not mean that nations today, which do not exist as theocracies or as holy nations before God, should ever attempt to follow these examples. In fact, the Old Testament historical narrative shows that such severe laws and penalties could never produce a truly holy people because the laws did not change the people's hearts. Such severe penalties for religious infractions, family rebellion, and sexual sin should not be used as a pattern for government today. Or as Calvin says, I would have preferred to pass over this matter in utter silence 
if I were not aware that here many dangerously go astray. For there are some who would deny that a commonwealth is duly framed which neglects the political system of Moses and is ruled by common laws of nations. Let other men consider how perilous and seditious this notion is. It will be enough for me to have proved it is false and foolish. Stick with me here. We're almost done. In summary, there must be a recognition that Israel is unique in God's economy. This is something, whether you're a covenant or dispensational theologian, There must be a recognition that theonomy and Christian nationalism would violate the First Amendment by ending religious freedom. It must be noted that theonomists and Christian nationalists fail to recognize that even Israel, which was duly ruled by God, could not bring about universal obedience. In fact, that whole history of Israel is one long story of doing that which is right in their own eyes and one of exile and punishment. Even the Bible itself recognizes two kinds of laws— First, the law given to Israel. Second, the Bible explicitly says, quote, Gentiles do not have the law, but they have the law written on their hearts, which is the moral law. The essence of the new covenant is that God writes his law upon the hearts of his people, not in the tablets of stone. A new heart is required for obedience, not state-enforced religion. And here's how I want to finish with this. Remember this? Chuck Colson, evangelicals and Catholics together. Remember what they were doing? 1994, there was a collaboration between Roman Catholics and evangelicals who put out a joint statement to affirm the co-belligerency for social purposes. Colson, Packer, Land, Bright, Oz Guinness, Peter Kraft, and others all signed on to it. The key detractors were Sproul, MacArthur, D. James Kennedy. The central debate was whether or not Roman Catholics were truly brothers and sisters in Christ because the Roman Catholic Church denies at least one essential of the gospel— namely justification by faith alone. Notice that during the Reformation, it was not a debate about grace or faith or Christ or the glory of God or the Bible. The issue of the debates during the Reformation, however, was about grace and faith and Christ, the glory of, the Bible, glory of God and the Bible alone. And that's what ECT won completely undermined. But what about EC 2.0 or 3.0? There's been multiple ones. Notice what he says this. Christian nationalism, says Torba, will look very different in every country and even every state, depending on the Christian population and culture of the Christian nationalists there. In many parts of America, Christian nationalism will take either a Protestant or Catholic approach. It goes even beyond that. This book is a result of collaboration and influence from across the Christian faith, we are thankful for our Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox brothers and sisters who have inspired us to publish this book. We recognize and respect one another's differences and unite in our shared love of Jesus Christ, our King. So what is this? What is going on here? Philosophical integralism. It's legal integralism. And it's ecumenical integralism. So what I want to summarize is where do we go from here? There are a lot of things we could say. This is the final thing. We must recognize that Christian nationalism is just another totalitarian movement that is being used to balkanize and disrupt religious organizations. Some of the figures involved in the movement are frankly useful idiots. And they'll blow up your Twitter account. In fact, I completely, utterly expect one massive struggle session after this. Other figures within the movement are ideologues who are knowingly causing this fracturing within the church and our nation. Second, we must recognize 
that Christian nationalism functions like the other totalitarian groups we've discussed at this conference. The current expressions of it are more conservative forms of it, but they operate with the same method and end goals. But they will tell you it is all to bring about the kingdom of God and the lordship of Christ, which is nothing more than religious propaganda. Third, pastors need to be aware of this movement and reject it within their churches. You want to split your church? This is something worse than the color of the carpet. This is something that will fundamentally rip your church apart. Fourth, we must support the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion, lest we lose it. This means we must return to constitutional principles and the classical liberal idea of a free society. And finally, churches must be committed to defending the gospel in our present day and culture, but it must also fight for society that allows for the freedom of religion that is being attacked from both inside the church and outside of the church. Thank you.